That's my favorite video, bar none, right there. That's awesome. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name's Jeff. If I haven't met you before, I'd love to meet you and say hi to you. Welcome, everybody watching online who somehow just could not bring yourself to get out of bed because you lost one hour's worth of sleep. I'm not saying you're slackers, but you do your own math. But it's good to be together and uh, glad that uh, you guys faithfully came out and uh, we're a part of uh, this weekend. We've been in a conversation uh, last few weeks uh, that we call our mixtape, Seven Songs We Fell in Love To. And in that conversation, uh, we've been talking about kind of relationships, looking specifically at the book of Song of Songs, and, and just looking at this relationship that's displayed there unfold over time. And so uh, you see this couple in Song of Songs. It's a real poetic book, but you see them meet each other, discover a man with a name, a woman with a heart, fall in love, date. Then last weekend, we saw them get married. And now we're going to talk about their marriage side of the relationship here for a couple weeks. So all of that uh, is online. If you miss those conversations, you can uh, go online or use our app and catch up on them. I think you would uh, like that. be helpful if you did. And so I encourage you to do that. This weekend, I'm going to talk specifically to married people, all right? So we don't usually do that a ton, but we're going to do that this weekend. And so what that does is that leaves about 60% of us in the room that I'm not talking directly to. And you might be thinking, well, what am I supposed to do with this? Well, let me tell you. Uh, this is what you would want to do with it. If you're not old enough to be married yet, or you just have decided not to be married, uh, but it's kind of out there in your future one day, right? Because you can be like single and 15, uh, but it's out there in your future one day. The way that you would want to hear this is how I want to prepare for marriage and what my expectations and godly responses are for marriage, the kind of spouse that I'm going to be. If you're single again uh, and marriage is in the future for you again, you think, you know, one day I would like to get remarried, uh, same thing. It's a prep for marriage. A lot of what I'm going to say today, I guarantee you, you're going to come up to me afterwards and say, I wish I would have heard that 15 years ago, right? So you didn't, but you let's move forward. So you do today, and it'll be a foundation to build off of. Uh, those of us who are single and we don't really have a desire to be married again, you might say, well, what do I do with this? And I would say, this is a discipleship tool then that you're going to use. Uh, the Bible is very clear uh, that older women should disciple younger women, older men should disciple younger men. So whether you have children or grandchildren or just anybody in, their, in your life, uh, these are biblical truths that you're going to help disciple into uh, their lives and help them get a hold of it, okay? So nobody's off the hook. The Bible applies to everybody all the time. And whether we're gleaning the truth of the Bible for kind of instant implementation or we're gleaning it so we can disciple or lead or apply it to our lives later on, uh, everybody's in on this conversation. But the passage is directed directly toward married people, and the conversation is going to be two. And we're going to be talking about sex and sex inside that marriage relationship. So it's kind of funny, those of us who grew up in church just flinched a little when I said sex. You're like, can he just raise money or something instead, right? Here's $1,000, leave me alone. So we're, we're just going to have to get used to the word sex, you know what I'm saying? So as I say sex, you'll acclimate to me saying sex, and you'll get adjusted to me talking about sex, and sex won't be so taboo to talk about in church. And by the time we finish our sex talk, and you understand all that there is about sex, you'll be adjusted to the sex conversation. You know what I'm saying? Sex, right? So <clears throat> that's what we're going to do. So we're going to talk about sex, and we're actually going to have a very practical, uh, a very frank, a very mature conversation about the sexual relationship within marriage. Now, this is why we're talking about this. We've been looking at the book of Song of Songs, and last weekend, uh, as this couple grew and matured, we started talking about marital love. And the word love in the book of Song of Songs is used three different ways. So Song of Songs was originally written in Hebrew, and so we translated it from Hebrew to Greek. So when you take it back to Hebrew, there's three distinct ways that God uses the word love. And we talked about two of them last week. We talked about this idea of reach love, reach love. Every time you say something in Hebrew, you kind of have to clear your throat a little bit. And that is the love of a friend or a companion. It's where we get our idea of a soulmate. 
Like I've discovered a soulmate. She gets me. He understands me. We, we, we have to be connected. We're in love with each other, right? And we said that is a great basis for marriage. In fact, you would kind of want that first before you grew into marriage. And then that type of love, that rayach kind of a love, needs to be fed and nurtured and developed in marriage, or we become roommates and we become like grumpy old people that live together. And that's not what God wants. It's not his vision for marriage, right? So rayach kind of love. Now, another kind of love that God uses in the book of Song of Songs is what's called a hava love, a hava love. And that's a love of the will or a love of commitment. And that kind of love is our marriage vows, right? For better, for worse, for, for richer, for poorer, sickness and health. And we said that that love is usually discovered in the worse, poorer, and sickness part of marriage. That that, I, I am not leaving you. I have decided that I am giving my life to you. And, and we are, we're in it to win it. Through, through the ups and the downs, <clears throat> the one thing you can count on is that I will be by your side. And we said there's a richness, there's a power. That love, honestly, you discover the longer that you're married, and it becomes one of the most bonding parts of marital love. So we talked about that last weekend. Like I said, it's on the app if you want to listen to it. But it's two of the three ways that God uses the word love in the book of Song of Songs. So the, you have reah love, you have ahava love. And then the third type of love that God uses in the, work, in the book of Song of Songs is the word dod. Dod love. It's the Hebrew word dod. And that's, that word dod means to caress or to fondle. It's the sexual expression of love. This is where we get the term that we make love with each other. That's, what, that's where that comes from, out of the book of Song of Songs, where we would look and say, yeah, there's a, there's a way that we express love to each other in marriage, and we express it sexually, and it's healthy, it's good, God created it, and it's a powerful part of our marriages. Now, you see this show up in the book of Song of Songs a couple places. So uh, Song of Songs, this couple has grown. Now they're married. They call each other their beloved. That's like their little pet name for each other, right? So she talks about this in Song of Songs chapter 5. She said, my beloved, my, she has a dream about her husband. She says, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening my heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, and my fingers were flowing with myrrh on the handles of the bolt. Do the math, all right? So she, she, has, had a, she has had a sexual dream. When she's thinking about her husband, and she loves him, turned her on right? And it's a sexual expression. It's a dode love. It's a natural response to someone that I'm in love with. Uh, he says this in Song of Solomon chapter 7. He's looking at his wife's naked body, and he says, your stature is like that of the palm, and your breasts are like clusters of fruit. I said, I will climb the palm tree, and I will take hold of the fruit, right? <laughs> Do the math. And so th this, is, <clears throat> this, is a, this is a married couple they have Rayah love, they're soulmates, they're nurturing that. They have Ahava love, they've made a commitment of marriage to each other. And now they're expressing Dode love. They, they want each other. They're sexually drawn to each other, and it is an expression of their love for each other. And in this, you take this passage and others, of course, in the scripture, you start to discover <clears throat> God's vision and why he created us this way. And I put this in my notes, said this, God's vision and intention for sex within marriage is that two married people would freely and frequently express dode love to each other. In God's view, <clears throat> dode love, sexual love in marriage, is as common as friendship in marriage. It's as common as serving each other in marriage. Dode love in marriage is as normal as non-taboo as being faithful to each other in marriage, as ahava love. And he looks and says, yeah, this is another natural, God-created way that we express love to each other. And my vision for sex, the reason I created you this way, because God's the creator of sex, not the devil. God's the creator of sex. The reason I created you this way is so that you can express these deep 
feelings, these deep connectedness of love that can really only be expressed through your sexual interaction with each other through the expression of dode love, right? Now, when you start thinking about this, <clears throat> this kind of quickly becomes a big conversation, right? Because you start thinking about sex and you start thinking about everything that's involved with it, it gets real complicated real quick. And one of the things I love about God and what I love about the Bible is when things are hard for us to get our head all the way around, what he'll often do is he'll say, just do it, and as you're doing it, it'll make sense to you, right? So that's usually why God commands us to do something. He's not controlling us as much as he's saying, this will never be normal, so just do these things and it'll make sense. So for instance, he says, love your enemies, and we would look and say, well, yeah, but God, you don't understand what an enemy is. Like, just love them, and as you love them, you will learn to love them, and then it will make sense to you, right? Forgive as you've been forgiven. Yeah, God, but you don't understand how deeply I was wounded. Forgive as you've been forgiven, and as you are forgiving them, forgiveness will make sense to you. And so God, it's fascinating in the Bible, God does this with sex and marriage. He does the same kind of thing. He says, listen, have sex freely and frequently. And as you do that, all of the power and the meaning of dode will come, come to, to be. But, but you engage each other this way because I created you. I want you to bond together with each other this way. And just like you would express soulmate, just like you would express faithfulness, you express this sexually. Okay, so let me show you this. If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul is writing on God's behalf here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and this is what he says. It's page 796, and the Bible's in the chairs if you want to use one of those. It's all on the app if you want to use that. So 796, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Here's what God says. God says this, but since sexual immorality is occurring... Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive from each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So it's interesting, it's fascinating actually, that God would give very specific instruction to a husband and wife about this area of their life, okay? So let's, let's pull this passage apart a little bit, see if we can understand it some, and I think you'll find some fascinating and helpful stuff as we go through this conversation. Okay, so he starts with verse 2 of chapter 7, and he says, but since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. Because sexual immorality is rampant, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. What Paul does here is he's, he's teaching the church. These, these folks that he's writing this letter to are brand new Christ followers who were raised in a culture in which God's desire for morality, marriage, and sexual activity had never been expressed. They'd never heard it before. And so Paul is instructing them for the very first time. And he says, let, let me start by kind of laying down a base here, right? Which is, is what I want to show you. The first thing he says is this. But since sexual morality is, in, is occurring, men should have sex with their wives and wives should have sex with their husbands and nobody else. And this was a radical idea. Basically what Paul says is this, is that marriage is the only godly sexual outlet. That's it. And this was new information to these guys. Paul says, listen, just so you know that now that you're a Christ follower, I know you've never been exposed to this before, and the church of Jesus Christ and the Bible is the only place that says this in the whole culture you live in. But God's design is this, that men have sex only with their wives and wives have sex only with their husbands, and all other outlets are sinful, so all, all sex outside of marriage is sinful. All sex that's non-relational, hookup, 
pornography, that's all sinful. But in a marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman that is ordained and blessed by God, it's a public marriage. We came together. The church is involved. There's a blessing from God. That marriage, that covenant, that is the only place where you can have sexual relations and not be sinning, right? Now, for this culture that Paul writes this to, this was brand new information, because sexual immorality was the commonplace, and it was occurring even in the church that's full of these new believers. And they had never been taught anything different. Their culture is a lot like our culture today without the internet. All the same things, you just couldn't watch it on your phone. So, so some of these folks are converts from pagan religions in which they were raised having sex with temple prostitutes at church. They were taught to worship a false god that way. It was normal to them. Prostitution was normal. In fact, prostitution in many ways in this culture didn't have the same taboos it has today because a wife would look at her husband and he had a sexual need and she'd say, go, go get a prostitute. I don't want to have another baby. Go get a prostitute, right? And it was a normal outlet. It was normal to have multiple wives. It was normal to have concubines. Their art was sexual. Their music was sexually immoral, immoral, just like ours. They just didn't have the internet. And they'd been raised in this culture, and this is the first time that they had ever heard that God has a different design. He has a design for marriage. He has a design for sexual relationship. And there's, there's something to sex beyond, I, I just want to have my sexual needs met. So Paul kind of starts at this very, very base, and he says, listen, just so we understand each other, that the only place that sexual activity is appropriate and godly is within marriage. And whatever's driving that sexual need for you, whether you and your spouse have had, have just really done well with love, and, and now you, it's been really romantic, and now you want to come together sexually, whether you and your spouse have just been really, really great with a hava love and there's just been a great commitment and you want to come together sexually, or whether your hormones are just flying, something turns you on. The only person, the only place you are to turn with your sexual needs is a wife to her husband and a husband to his wife. And God would say that because he would look and say, listen, you are sexual creatures. I created you that way. Lots of things turn you on, but when you have that sexual need, you direct it toward your spouse, and when you do that, it will save you. It will save you from pain. It will save her from pain. It will save you from sin and the pain of sin. It saves you from the affair. It saves you from the STD. It it saves you from being addicted to pornography and being caught in it. All you have to do is go to each other, and all of that pain is avoided and erased in your life, right? And Paul says that, that's the basis of God's understanding of sex. Well, then he goes on, and he, he, because it gets complicated, right? The more you go into this, the more complicated it becomes. So he goes on, and he, he kind of presses deeper into this, and he, he says this in, in verse 3. He says, husbands, husbands should fulfill their marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife should fulfill her marital duty to her husband. That word duty is, a, is an interesting word. If you grew up in church like I did, you, you might have heard that before, before right? You got a duty. You got to do your duty, right? You do your duty. And so if you're a woman and you grew up in church, somebody might have looked at you and said, listen, you got a duty. Do your duty. Just do your sex duty. Do it right? Because you have to. And if you're a husband, same thing. You have a duty to her. Duty. And you're like, ah, it's fourth quarter. LeBron's got the ball. No, do your duty. Do it right now. Right? And that's kind of the way that that was spoken about. That word duty is interesting because we translate the New Testament from Greek to English. And when you take that word and push it back into Greek, you also can translate it debt. So the husband should fulfill his marital debt to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. There's a marital debt that is to be fulfilled. Now, what is he talking about with this marital debt? 
The marital duty is to express love. It's the debt of love, right? We have a debt of love to one another. Paul says it this way in Romans. He said, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. What's he talking about here? The thing that I am indebted to is, is someone's love. As a Christ follower, I'm indebted to God's love, right? God will always love me more than I can love him. I'm always, it's, it's, it's never an even playing field with God. So I am always indebted to God's love. Now that debt, the Bible would teach, is not to create a duty or an obligation in me. What that debt does is it causes a joyful response in me. It's kind of like looking and saying, that guy saved my life. I'm indebted to him for the rest of my life. That, that person, my kid was going off the rails. That person got involved with them, saved my kid. I'm indebted to that person for the rest of my life. It's not an obligation. It's, it's a joyful thing where you look and say, they did for me something I could never do for myself, and I want to serve them. I want to help them. I have a debt of love. Paul would say we view marriage that way that we are indebted to each other. We talked about this a little bit last week, and, and you can listen to it later if you want, but we said this, marriage is not the end result of romance. A wedding is, and, and that's great, right? Anniversaries and romantic nights, that's the end result of romance, but that's not what marriage is. Marriage is me giving my life to another person. I surrender myself to them. I surrender my rights, my dreams, my hope, my money, my body. I surrender them to them because I love them. And my love for them and the love that I receive from them, I have a debt of love. I want to serve them. I want to give to them. So when Paul says this, when he says, listen, uh, I, you should fulfill that debt. When, when your wife, he's talking all about sex here. He's looking to say, when, when your wife has a sexual need, you, you, you serve her, you express dode to her. You love her. You would never deprive her of that. When a husband has a sexual need or desire, you serve him. You, you express love to him. You fulfill that debt to him because that, that's what you guys were doing when you got married. You, you, you pay that always. It's a debt of love, a debt of gratitude, a debt that's expressed through serving and loving one another, right? Now, he goes on and he says this. It's real interesting. The next verse. Uh, well, actually, before I get to that, let me say this. Let's talk about this in a practical way, okay? Here's the practical way. The majorities of couples have different sexual needs, right? So if you are that couple, and one of you's got a high sex drive, one of you's got a, a low sex drive, guess what? You are normal. There is nothing wrong with you, okay? And this is where this idea of service becomes such a big deal. Because we are different, and because we translate love through sex differently than our spouse, this is why we have to serve each other. Uh, the idea that, that you're just going to romantically fall in love and, and hot passionate sex with each other like every three days like they do in the movies, that stuff's dumb. But the idea that one of you has a higher sex drive or one of you has a lower one is normal. The idea that one of you has different sexual needs. Some people have a high sex drive and that is their sexual need. And the spouse, you take that to your spouse to avoid all the pain. And as a spouse, I give myself, I, right? I, I service that debt, so to say. Some people have a higher sexual drive because they're insecure. And they need to go to their spouse and they need to know that, that, that there's security there, that when you engage them sexually, it makes them feel or it communicates security. And that's why there's such a high sex drive. It's not because there's something wrong with them. It's not because they're like a sex maniac. It's because that's how they receive that communication. 
and it affirms that in their hearts. Some people have a high sex drive because they want a baby. Like, I want to have a lot of sex in this 10-day in this window especially. I want to have a lot, like a lot of sex, right? Some people have different sexual needs because they don't want a baby. They're like, the last thing I want is a baby, right? These are all the things of us coming together. Some people have a high, uh, a high sex need because they, they have body image issues. They look and they say, I'm not as young as I used to be. The war of the children has taken its toll on my body. I need to know, I need to know that my husband will still engage me sexually because the guy at the office finds me attractive. I need to know that my wife will still engage me sexually because every woman on the internet will engage me sexually. There's different reasons and different causes for high sex needs or low sex needs or sexual needs. And Paul says you take all those and you give those to each other. There is nothing weird or wrong with your marriage because you have different sexual needs. And because that's the case, Paul says, yeah, you're not meeting yours, you're meeting theirs. And you engage each other in that way. Just like you would express rea love to each other. Just like you would express ahava love to each other. You would work at that. You also would work and mature and grow the dode expression of love to each other based on who you are individually. Now Paul goes on, he says this. He says, the wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to the husband. And in the same exact way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but he yields it to his wife. Okay, this word authority, same thing. When you push it back into the Greek, it translates a little differently. It means this. The wife does not have ownership of the wealth, is what that would mean. The wife is not the owner of her own body, nor is the husband the owner of their own body. The husband does not own the wealth of his body. The wife does not own the wealth of her body. Why? Because they have surrendered those things to each other. Now, let me just pause here for a second. Probably, hands down, the most controversial thing I'm going to say this week and I'm about ready to say, okay? This would be very, very foreign to our cultural ear, right? You do not own your body. That's very weird to our ear because we think that way. We think it's my body and you don't have any right to tell me what to do with my body. I can do with my body whatever I want to do with my body. It's my body. And the Bible would press in very hard to that conversation and would say the exact opposite. You do not own your body. If you are single, in fact, every one of us, but if you're a single person, you would, hear, you would think of it this way. You do not own your body. None of us do. The Lord owns your body. Your body was never yours. It belongs to God. And so that's where God says, it's not, it's not your body to engage in sexual immorality. It's not your body to be violent toward another person. It's not your body to do whatever you want to do with it. Your body is my body. You belong to me. You've been purchased at a price. You do not own your body. I own your body. Then in marriage, what happens is there's a second level of ownership. I do not own my body, period. And then when I get married, I have given my body to my spouse. So God looks and says, you can give your body, you have some freedom in this. You can give my body that I'm letting you use to one other person, but you've surrendered it then to them. The wealth of your body or the translation, the authority of your body has never been yours. It belongs to your spouse. And your spouse owns or has the, the ownership of that. Think of it this way. Uh, this week, um, somebody bought me a gift card. I don't even know who it was, but it was really kind of them. And they bought me a gift card. And they, they, uh, they put $100 on a gift card, a gas card, and put it on a place where I would find it. And they put a note on it so I knew that it was to me and just said, Pastor Jeff, we love you. Here's a little something to bless you. It was great. It was really, really kind, right? So this is what happened. Somebody went and took $100 out of their wallet. They bought a gift card. They wrote a note on that gift card. They put that gift card where I would find it. I could see publicly and obviously that the gift card was a gift to me. 
I took the gift card, and then the gift card became mine to use, right? Now, if I had gone into that person's home, broken to their home, got their wallet out, pulled 100 bucks out, and walked out the door, they would say, what are you doing? You're stealing from me. And I would be like, no, you were going to do it anyways, right? <laughs> if I had just taken the money, I would be a thief. But because they took the money and they gave the money to me, when they gave me the gift, the ownership of that money transferred to me. Now that money is my money. Now if they changed their mind and they broke into my house in the middle of the night and they got past my 200 pound dog, which is a carnivore and will destroy you, <laughs> right? But they got past my dog and they went and they got the gift card from under my microwave where it is right now and they took it and they said, I want my gift card back. I would look at them and I would say, you're stealing it from me. That's mine now. You gave it. The ownership transferred. It's not yours. It's mine. You're stealing it, but I gave it to you. But now it's mine. See? God says the wife doesn't have ownership. She doesn't own the gift card anymore. And, and she yields it. She, she gives that ownership over to her husband. This is important. In the exact same way, the husband does not have authority. He gave the gift card. His body is not his anymore. It's hers. And he is to yield it to his wife. See? And so the scripture looks at this and says, that's the way that we are to think. This, I am not mine I am surrendered to my wife. She is surrendered to me. And I yield my body, and the context is all sexually. I yield my body sexually to the needs, the sexual needs of my spouse. Sometimes yielding means that you give yourself freely and frequently to your spouse. Sometimes yielding means that you withhold yourself sexually from your spouse. Right? But, but the principle is this. The Bible teaches that that decision is no longer mine. It's not my gift card. I gave it. It's no longer mine. It is my spouse's needs that are driving our sexual interaction. And Paul builds on this idea, and he goes on, he says this. He says, this is why you do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer. That word deprive, push it back, it means steal. This is why you don't steal from each other. You don't deprive each other sexually. It, it's not your place to deprive your spouse sexually. You don't deprive each other sexually. Because you're stealing something that is theirs. Now, let's talk about this, this part of the passage a little bit because it's important. When Paul says you don't deprive each other sexually, in practical terms, what, he's, what is he talking about? So let me just put some practical terms on it, ready? He's saying this, you don't weaponize sex. You don't weaponize sex. Sex and withholding sex is not a punishment. Uh, Sex is not to be used as a tool of manipulation. Sex is never to be done out of guilt. Sex, sex is not something that you ever force. Sex is not something that you, you take the sexual freedoms in your marriage and you make your partner feel belittled by it. Sex is not to be weaponized. It is to be freely given. You do not deprive. You do not go days and weeks and months and years without sex. You don't deprive each other. You don't punish each other. You do not spiritually manipulate each other with sex. You don't go home with a verse. I got me a verse. Jeff said you have to have sex with me whenever I want. Jeff did not say that. And if we're going to make it all about what Jeff said, email me. I'll say something else. I'll give you some ammo. Jeff said, I don't have to have sex with you for six months. <laughs> right? If we want to do that, it, it, this, this is what Paul's saying. He's like, we don't do this as a follower of Christ. I don't, I don't deprive, I don't weaponize sex. He says, so you don't deprive each other. You don't steal from each other. 
except perhaps by mutual consent. So there is absolutely this idea that we're not going to have sex right now by mutual consent so that, and for a time so that we can devote ourselves to prayer. It is certainly godly to look and say, listen, there's a lot going on in our lives right now, and sex will harm, it won't heal. We just had a nasty fight, and every married couple is going to have a nasty fight. And we're not going to have makeup sex. We're going to withhold until we can be reassured that we are healed, we're back on the same page, we've asked forgiveness, and we've returned godliness to another area of our relationship. You've been gone. I haven't seen you in a week. You just want to have sex with me? The, the rea part of our relationship, is, is that tank is very, very empty. By mutual consent, we're going to talk, we're going to connect, we're going to tie back into each other and fill up these other aspects of our relationship. There's wounds. She, she's been sexually abused. I've been sexually abused. My spouse needs healing. They need help. I'm going to control my own body and withhold sex so, so that I'm not adding to that harm because we hit a trigger and that trigger has her back there. And if we interact sexually right now, I, our sexual interaction is going to be associated with the pain in her past or her, his past. So by mutual consent, I don't, want, I don't want our love life to be tied to your pain. So we're going to withhold from each other, right? So Paul says that would be appropriate. It's appropriate. It's not appropriate to deprive. It is appropriate to have mutual consent and to work on the spiritual aspect of our lives. But then he comes back in, he says this, then come together again. This is not days, this is not weeks, this is not months. You come together again specifically so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Remember the first thing he says, he says, because of the immorality. Let me give some parameters. And he's back. He's kind of wrapping the thought up. He comes out. He says, because of the immorality, you don't go forever without sex. You come back together because if you don't, Satan will use it as a tool to break down not only the dode aspect of your love, but the ahava aspect of your love and the rea aspect of your love. See? So you do it because you need to have sex. You need it for all kinds of reasons. But you come back together again, and you don't deprive. Now, here's the obvious question. I, I get this all the time, so I know what you're thinking. So, Jeff, uh, how often are we supposed to come back together again? Then? Or, you know, what are we talking about here? All right? So how often, how often should you have sex? Right? Here, here's, here's what I would say to you. Okay, here it is. Ready? The partner with the greatest sexual need sets the pace. The partner with the greatest sexual need sets the pace. By the way, in Raya love, the, part, the partner with the greater emotional need sets the pace. In Ahava love, the, the partner with the greatest need for commitment sets the pace. In Dode love, the partner with the greatest sexual need sets the pace. Okay. So whatever that need is, you're engaging. The partner who has less need is serving, is giving the debt of love, Right? so that Satan will not tempt. Guys, this is important. This is important. Because sexual temptation, because immorality is everywhere, Paul says. Right? So by having a sexual outlet, by feeding this part of our life, it helps us to resist immorality. When I know my husband still wants me, as my body ages, because the guy at the office wants me, it helps me to resist those advances because I know things are better at home. When I know that sex is free and frequent at home, it helps me to resist because when I go on the road, everybody wants me. The woman at the hotel wants me, the person over there that thinks I'm great wants me, and every woman on the internet wants me. So when I know that there is, there is a loving, embracing, eager relationship at home, it helps me to resist that temptation. If you travel, by the way, this is a little side note, if you travel a lot and you're apart, the last thing you should do before you leave is have sex. The first thing you should do when you get home, have sex. 
right? Because, it, because of all this temptation that is everywhere, God says, right, this is why I gave you guys this dode love. This is why I would have you do that. So the partner with the greatest needs sets the pace. Years ago, I had a lady come into my office. They had just got married. They're newlyweds, three or four months. She said, I got to talk to you. I said, okay. She goes, I got a problem with my husband. I got a problem with my husband. And I, I thought to myself, well, I told you that before you married him, but you didn't listen to me. Uh, but she, she said, uh, she came in. She goes, I got to talk to you. She goes, uh, we're having issues in our sex life. I'm like, oh, boy. And I'm like, okay. What, like what? She goes, my husband's a sex addict. Sex addict. I'm telling you, he's a sex addict. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? And she goes, he wants to have sex constantly, constantly, Pastor Jeff. I'm like, well, can you quantify constantly for me? She said, like every other day, he wants to have sex. I was like, sweetie, you don't have a sex addict on your, on your hands. You've got a husband on your hands, right? There's nothing dirty. There's nothing embarrassing there's nothing perverted, very possibly nothing broken. It's a frequent expression of love. Just like we would work at communication, just like we would work at speaking gently to each other. See, God would look and say, right, the dode expression of love, the sexual expression of love is a healthy, a good, a normal, a natural part of our relationship. And if you're like a normal couple, you have to work at it. You have to figure it out. You have to love each other, right, through that expression. God would say this. He would say that the purpose of sex is to express love. Express love. And if you've been married more than 10 minutes, you know that this gets real complicated real quick, right? Because we're individuals, and we're individuals that come into our relationships with baggage. And so if you're struggling, I would look at you and say, if you're struggling with Ray, I love, if you're struggling with expressing your emotions to each other, you should get help. You should work at that. You should get counsel. If you're struggling with a hava love, being faithful to each other, and I just never saw it, and dad never was, I don't even know what you mean, and one person my whole life, then you should get counsel, you should get help. And I would say to you, if you're struggling with dode, that you should get counsel, you should get help. Because this is what happens. We all have been raised in a godless society that's full of immorality. The only place on the planet that you're going to hear about marriage and sex within marriage is at the church. It's the only place. So it's foreign. We weren't, we weren't raised with it. We never saw it. We never saw good examples of it. So it's foreign. And because the world is so sexually immoral, immoral, we have a bunch of wounds. Some of us have been sexually abused. We have all kinds of wounds. And that causes us to distort and, 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 to, and to not trust and to, to totally not be able to engage in dode love well in, in marriage because we had never had it expressed to us that way and we're wounded. That means we need help. All of us have been raised on pornography. We sexually abuse our own kids through pornography. The average boy first encounters pornography when he's nine years old. He has no capability whatsoever to download that in any kind of a healthy way. The average girl is first to expose pornography when she's 11. The fastest growing realm of pornography is women. Women watching pornography and being visually stimulated by it because they're introduced to these things way before they have any capacity to download them or even understand them, and it has contorted our view of sexual, sexual activity. So we have to understand that. We get married. You get married, suddenly you think that your marriage is going to be a porn movie. It's not. Porn is fake. Every aspect of it is absolutely fake. No marriage ever plays out like a porn movie. See? Are there times that, that lovemaking is like hot? Sure. Are there times that it's like kind of? Sure. Are there times that it's like, all right, yeah. That's reality. 
But because we've been so twisted and so corrupted by this immoral culture, we have to lean back into what God actually says. And this is what Paul was addressing. He's like, guys, sex is wonderful. It's beautiful. Its purpose is to express love. That's only in the confines of marriage. And you're not always going to feel like it. And one of you is going to be communicated to it differently than the other one. And so we love each other. And just like I would, I would look and say, I kind of expect my husband to like engage me emotionally. Just as I would look and I would say, I kind of expect my wife to be faithful to me, right? A hava love. It is perfectly reasonable to look and say, one of our desires for marriage is that dode is healthy. And if we need to press into our walk with God and the healing of our own lives to do that, that would be a wonderful investment into your marriage. God created sex. It's a God-given creation. It's not a, it's not a tool of the devil, right? It's a God-given creation. And he created it to be a marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 Paul says this, talking about marriage, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They will have sex. They will express dode. Then he goes on, he says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. God looks and says, listen, this is a part of marriage. And, and just like with Reha, like this idea that your friends and soulmates, Jesus would say, that's our, my relationship with you. You're not my slaves. I am your friend. You are, we are closer than brothers and sisters. We're family. Just like with Ahava, I'm never going to leave you. Jesus would say, that's, that's, that's what I'm telling you. I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to forsake you. I'm your anchor in the storm. I'm never going anywhere. And the way that you're going to experience that the most tangibly is in your marriage. Jesus also looks and says, and you come together as one flesh. That the dode love is also reflective of my love for you. The intimacy, the unspoken communication, the, the joy, the thrill, the faithfulness of it. All of this is an expression of me. And you understand me as you understand these things in your relationship. And so I created you that way. I, I am the God who created sex. I am the one who gave it. Satan corrupted it. Human wickedness perverted it. But there's nothing wrong. There's nothing dirty. There's nothing embarrassing. It's something that I want you to have, and I want you to express to each other faithfully, freely, and frequently. I heard uh, an analogy once that was this. Imagine that you and your beloved are uh, taking a hike in the mountains, right? And you're having a great time. And there's lots of rayah going on. You're just sharing your hearts, just enjoying each other, got away, no kids, all that kind of stuff, just awesome, right? And part of that rayah, that rayah is fueled then by a hava. You're, it's an anniversary, let's pretend. And, and you're talking about all the, the craziness of the last year. And at least I had you, baby. And, and we stayed together and we connected. We've been faithful. And the years are ticking by and it gets sweeter as time goes by. Imagine that as you're on that hike and you're enjoying those types of love, a blizzard blows in. And suddenly, what is a pleasant afternoon and a great time together becomes a life-threatening time together. It's scary, and you're, not, you're, you're worried about the situation. So off in the distance, you see a cabin. And you go to that cabin, and you get into the door, and the storm is raging, and you're cold, and you're hungry, and you're wet, and you're in trouble. But thankfully, somebody has stacked that cabin up with wood and a way to start a fire. So you start the fire in the fireplace. And that fire rages. And as that fire rages, it provides warmth. It provides healing. It provides nourishment. It provides security. It, it provides a place in the time of the craziness of life. And the fire is one of the greatest gifts that you've ever received in your life because of where you're at in your life and what it provides to you. Sex is like that fire. It, provi it can provide all of that. 
It, it, it can provide security and warmth and nourishment and fulfillment and be a blessing. If you take that fire out of the place it's meant to burn, that same fire will kill you. It will wound you. It will scar you. It will destroy you. The results of it, the fumes off of the fire will suffocate you. But you put that fire in its proper place, it will bless you. It's a gift to you. God would say, that's sex. In marriage, it's everything wonderful. In a Christ-centered marriage with two people trying to love each other, it's, it's one of the most beautiful expressions of that love, of that servanthood, of that surrender. Outside of that place, it will harm you, hurt you, steal from you, kill you, destroy you. So I give it to you, God would say. But I give it to you in this place for these reasons. And for a married couple, a man and a woman, I want you to nourish that fire. Don't let that burn out. Don't let that go down to ash, right? Because the whole place will become cold and dark. You nourish it. You build it. You feed it. And it will become a part of how you understand my love. All right. I'm going to ask the band to come out. And uh, would you pray with me as they settle in? Jesus, thank you for teaching us these things. Well, they don't always become natural because we're, we're raised in a culture where we're taught to be selfish. And so sex is all about what we want, not about what we can give. And so, God, we need your instruction. We need a renewed mind and a different perspective that comes from you. And God, uh, this gift that you've given for our marriages, thank you. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for how it expresses love to each other and ultimately reflects your love for us. God, as we go through life, it's always difficult to be like you. We always have to grow and change. So even in this part of our lives, God, would you let us yield to you? Would you let us know your heart and your mind? Would you empower us in this aspect of our life and change us accordingly? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your love for your amazing grace, for your goodness to us. It's in your name we pray.